you know, 1971, he was really hot, you know, he, he was gorgeous. And, you know, Charles Bronson, I, I have to say he was, he may not have been pretty in the face, but he was, he was built very well. They, they, they picked a good character. Just saying, I'm sure the ladies loved him back in the day. Let's move on. <laughs> All right, welcome back to GC8 Podcast, Geek Channel 8, the podcast where we look at pop culture history or the history of pop culture, depending on how you look at it, particularly film. We have been very focused on film lately. Um, we're, we've been in the midst of a series on Tarzan, but we all pretty much need to step away from Tarzan for a while. So we got <laughs> something different today. I'm pretty excited to get to it. But before that, let me welcome back Rosie. Hey, thank you for having me. It's good to be back. Great. It's great to have you. Since the last time we podcasted, I haven't actually uh, consumed a lot of media. I have been more busy producing media. In fact, I worked this week with a close relative, the son of one of the stars of the film we're going to be talking about today. Oh, well, that's cool. I didn't think about it at the time or I would have would have asked him for a a quote or something like that about today's film, but I was too busy working on his project. But we'll get to that later. What media have you been consuming since last we spoke? So I've been, you know, revisiting the Red Hot Chili Peppers Blood Sugar Sex Magic album because it's just, it's just an iconic album. And there is not, in my opinion, there's not a single song on that album that isn't good. I loved that CD. Someone stole it from me. Uh -huh. <laughs> it disappeared. I think I had a bunch of CDs get stolen, but the only one I really missed was that one. This, of course, was back before we all had our music in the cloud. So if you didn't have the actual CD, that meant you couldn't listen to it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it, when I was in high school, I had a car that had one of those older car stereos with the tape player in it that auto repeated, you know, flipped, uh, it auto flipped or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, I always forget the term for that. But yeah, I had that album stuck in my cassette player for months, my senior year. Very Gen X of me, I know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get into talking about the film. Before we discuss it in specific, let's talk about the year it came out. We're doing a film from the year 1971, which is about two decades before all that great Jane's Addiction and Red Hot Chili Peppers music. It was an interesting year for music. Yes, it was. I, I mean, really, if you think about it, it began the start of the post-Beatles era because just um, in October of 1970, the Beatles had broken up. And so the world, I think, was still getting used to that a little bit. Jim Morrison passed away in July, which wrapped up basically the Trinity that passed away in, within a very short period of time because we had just lost... Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. So it was the end of the late 60s, early 70s era, you know, during the Vietnam War. And uh, it, it was kind of wrapping up and music was starting to change and, and move towards uh, less protesty type songs to more, you know, more of the drugs and rock and roll aspect of music. And even, and I would even dare to say, even some very, very deep, deep roots 
for punk rock at that point, too. It definitely feels like the end of the 60s era and the beginning of something a little bit darker in the 70s. In January, the Apollo 14 mission launched. It landed on the moon in February. This was the third moon landing. So moon landings were starting to become more regular or routine, but definitely it was a more space age society than had been before that. In February in Switzerland, women got the right to vote. So our lead actress today uh, would have been able to uh, finally vote in Switzerland, her home country. In March, Led Zeppelin performed Stairway to Heaven for the first time, performed it live for the first time. In April, the Charles Manson and I think other members of the Manson family were sentenced to death. So we're very much in that post-hippie era. In May, Bangladesh becomes a country. In June, the Pentagon Papers are released. If you remember that, that's where a whistleblower revealed a lot about what was secretly going on behind the scenes in the Nixon White House and also about the war in Vietnam. And in July, Japan has one of its worst airline disasters, a Boeing 727 crash that killed 162 people. Mm. In August, there were race riots in Camden, New Jersey. So racial tension was still quite high. And then in September, our film came out. The film is Red Sun, and it is starring Charles Bronson. It was, I really enjoyed it. It's actually a spaghetti western. Spaghetti westerns were a revival of the westerns. Westerns sort of seemed to predominate until uh, the space age began, where other uh, genres like science fiction became more popular. But until about the 60s, sometime when there's this revival of the westerns by Italian production companies. And they're very interesting because they usually had Italian stars in them, but also they often had. American stars. In particular, the two that we most associate with them are Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson. And this one stars, stars Charles Bronson. They were usually filmed, though, in either uh, Spain or, in this case, France. So you have beautiful cinematography of the mountains there. And I guess Spaghetti Western was originally kind of a pejorative phrase because one they were italian so spaghetti but also convoluted in plot right possibly due to translation so mm -hmm. but fans of the genre have embraced the term and we use it a lot today this one film stars as we said charles bronson and charles bronson is uh i was just working with uh, his son on a project this week very cool charles bronson is the American star, but it also has a couple of other stars. It has Toshiro Mifune, who was well-known for playing samurais in Akira Kurosawa films. He was Japan's biggest star. So you've got one of... Uh, Charles Bronson was one of the U.S.'s biggest stars. Toshiro Mifune, who was one of 
Japan's biggest stars. And it also had Elaine Delon, who was one of France's biggest stars as the villain. Also, a pretty big name at this point in time was the leading lady, Ursula Andress, who came to fame as the first Bond girl. Okay, that's where I recognized her from. She was very, very popular Swiss actress, but most was more popular in Italian and U.S. films. And this was sort of at the peak of her popularity. So that's the film. Yeah, Red Sun, Soleil Rouge. My French is terrible, but I think that's how you say it. Sole Rosso in uh, Italian. Mm-hmm. And then it would be Sol Rojo in, in Espanol. Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been studying Spanish. Can you tell? <laughs> uh, yes, it starts with a heist on a train. And uh, uh, originally the, um, the main characters, Link and uh, Alain Dallion, or Gauche, or Gauche, he was Gauche. They were in partnership with this, with this heist on the train. Then there, there were Japanese delegates. They were on their way to the White House to present the President of the United States with a ceremonial sword, a katana, a Japanese samurai sword, uh, because the Japan was beginning to recognize that it was in, according to the film, it mm-hmm. was in a period of decline as a world power and was recognizing that the U.S. was rising as a world power. That is definitely suggested in the film. And so the Japanese delegation mm-hmm. is on their way, but you know there were no planes or anything like that. So the way they had to get from Japan to Washington, D.C. is by first boat across the Pacific and then by train. Across the country. Across what would become the United States through the Old West during its lawless period. It actually takes place in 1870. So it takes place exactly, almost exactly 100 years before the film was made. Yeah. So then during the heist, they were attacked by a local tribe, which they called them Comanches, (laughs) right? That's what Link kept calling them Comanches throughout the whole film. They didn't specify a technical tribe. They just called them Comanches. Well, Comanches, the Comanche are a tribe. Oh, my gosh. Okay, you need to edit that out. <laughs> Please <laughs> no, edit I think, that out. <laughs> I think I think it's worth worth keeping so that people, uh, so that other people don't feel dumb either if they didn't know that. <laughs> right, right. So, okay, so they were they were attacked by the Comanches and Ghosh and his guys on the on the crew kind of took advantage of that, took the money and left Link for dead. And in the process of that, Goach did kill one of the delegate's people. Not the delegate himself, but one of of his right-hand men that was with him. That is where Kuroda came in. In the process, they stole this beautiful sword. And so he had to get that back. You know, Link was left for dead. He discovers Link. So they basically kind of work out a deal where Kuroda is not going to leave Link. He, you know, takes care of him, but then he's not going to leave Link because they're going to go get that sword. And by the time the train comes back, 
in seven days. Right. It's never made clear exactly where the train is going for seven days and seven days back, but I guess that's how long it takes it to make the journey and then come back to and then head back again, I guess, or something. Yeah, I was wondering the logistics of that. And I was like, well, if they're catching him on the way back, are they even going to try to give the sword to the president at the time? Or, you know, how, how what's going on here? My guess is that the plan was for the ambassador to go to D.C., meet, turn around. I don't know. I Or maybe the next, you know, the distances in the Old West were really far between stations at that time. So it could be go to the next station, wait until there was the next train going back the other way, take it until there was, until they could, you know, obviously he had to spend the night somewhere, mm -hmm. get turned around again, you know, the going back the right direction. And then yeah. that was the day that he would be there. So right. I could totally believe that in 1870, that took seven days. If you're going to spend a night, you know, go one way, spend a night, go mm -hmm. the other way, spend a night, and then yeah. come back. It could easily take seven days. I could see that. Yeah. Just to clarify, in case people are confused, when we refer to Link, we're talking about the Charles Bronson character. When we are talking about Kurodo, or Jube as his first name, we're talking about the Toshiro Mifuni character. And when we're talking about Gosh. We're talking about Elaine Delon's character. Okay. So then what happens? Jubai nurses Link back to health. And through that process, you know, he, he's a uh, Link's like, I want to go find the money. And Jubai's like, we got to get that sword. So Link's still trying to ditch Jubai for a while. Things happen. They come around. He realizes he's not going to ditch Jubai because Jubai can out fight him outrun him he can outsmart him and uh there's no getting rid of him so he might as well just go along with it because regardless you know jubai wants to get the sword and he has links back the whole time because he wants to get that sword more than you know the fact that he likes link and vice versa really yep before we get any further let me give you a background on toshiro mifuni because i happen to have it here I meant to do this earlier. For those who aren't familiar with, with him, Toshiro Mifuni was actually born in China, and he served in the Japanese army during World War II. And he had never been to Japan until the after the war in at the age of 25. So he's 25 before he'd ever even been to Japan. During the army, he had been a aerial photographer. Oh, wow. He had the skills of photography, so he figured he would go to Tokyo and try to apply wherever they were hiring photographers, which would be Toho Studios, which is the big Japanese movie studio. Oh, neat. Okay. Yeah, but allegedly, so a lot of this is legend, and, you know, we don't know what the exact story is, but supposedly one of the stories is that his application to be a cinematographer, got sent to the wrong department. It got sent to the casting department instead. Another story is that he just decided to try acting while he was there. Whatever the case was, uh, he had a, uh, a tirade in an office there. And we're not sure 
one story is that he was actually angry and having a tirade. And another story is that he was in an acting audition and drew anger as his emotion that he had to show. But Akira Kurosawa saw him oh, wow. having this tirade, throwing things around, and then thought he would be perfect, mm-hmm. cast him as a gangster. And they ended up having a career that spanned about 15 years together from the late 40s to the 60s, kind of the way that Scorsese and De Niro worked together a lot for their first 15 years. Oh, cool. Okay. So that's a little background on Toshiro Mifune. I figured he would be the least familiar of the big names in this film to our listeners. So that's a little background on him. How do you think he did? How did you think uh, Elaine Delon did? Let's face it, Ghost was gorgeous. And the directors knew it. And they really played into how pretty he was. And that gold tooth, you know, he always made sure to smile like, to show off his gold tooth every chance he got throughout that whole movie <laughs> um and uh, he, you know but he but he did he did play a pretty villain very well you know charles bronson was great his kind of a his kind of a aloof cowboy swagger yeah and he's not a pretty man no he's so not it's a great contrast to put those two uh, on opposite sides yeah yeah the not so handsome kind of a good guy against the super pretty boy bad guy the woman was attracted to. The woman being Christina, which is the character played by Ursula Andrus. Yes, Christina. She and Ghost were lovers. But, uh, you know, but Toshiro Mifune, I really, I had never seen a film that he was in before. I was very impressed with his acting. He played his character very well. It just seems like whenever you see a film that has like an Asian character in it, they always have to be super patient with the dumbass American who thinks that they're tougher than they are, you know, and, and it, there's always a scene like that in the film and that the American always gets outsmarted and, and outdone. It's always done with the quote unquote Asians character having their, their, their class and their honors, you know, firmly in place firmly in place and they just move on, you know? Um, so it, it was just really neat to, to see those characters kind of play against each other, even though it was kind of typical. And we've seen that played out over and over and over again in films throughout the decades. It was a, uh, it was a really good character play. And I did like it too. One of the things I liked about this film was that if this were made today, like, I feel like samurais in movies now have been like, completely fetishized and they're like super human and like they like deflect bullets with their sword and you know there were scenes in this where like there were three guys with swords on a train and one guy with a gun and they're like yeah we're not gonna we're not gonna mess with that you know (laughs) we're gonna we're gonna give him (laughs) the sword you know um yeah just take it yeah (laughs) get out of here (laughs) yeah so we had essentially three different societies in three different eras Mm -hmm. one in sort of the beginnings in industrialization with firearms one that's still in its feudal medieval period fighting with swords and then one that's Mm -hmm. still in the stone age essentially native americans primarily fighting with bows and arrows Mm -hmm. so you got to see all three of these clash with each other which i thought was another really interesting thing about this particular film yeah 
spaghetti westerns were very influential to Quentin Tarantino, and I can totally see that in this film. I could see Quentin Tarantino remaking this film for the modern day age and it just being amazing. Right. And Toshiro Mifune was in, you said you hadn't seen him, but you have seen him because he was in Kill Bill. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. He was Hattori Hanza, the creator of the samurai swords that they're... Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I loved him in that film too. Yep. I can see where the Tarantino influence comes from. Uh, You know, there there was a lot of... um, Well, this is his year. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood takes its name from a spaghetti western, Once Upon a Time in the West. And it takes place close to the same year, maybe a couple of years before, during the the whole Manson thing. I had mentioned in our intro to this year that this is the year that the Manson family was sentenced. The murders probably occurred a year or two before, but this is definitely that era. And we know we've seen spaghetti westerns have influenced several of his films even i mean even more so than i did before i can really see it now it's been a long time since i've watched the spaghetti western so i really enjoyed this this choice in in film i did too and the interesting thing is it wasn't a big success it was panned by critics as either a misfire or mediocre or whatever and it didn't do very well commercially in the u.s as far as I know. Mm-hmm. However, it did better in France and especially in Japan. I think it did really well. I've seen a, quite a few spaghetti westerns, and I think this is may not be the best spaghetti western, but it is as good as many, I think. Mm-hmm. And I'm just surprised that it's not, even to this day, it's not very highly ranked. I really like the quote that you by said, he said, gun, sword, we all die the same way. When he was threatened with the gun, he was just like, yeah, we all die the same way. That was, that was a good line. I, I'm sorry. And if, if you have to bleep this out, you did, but, but that was basically his version of, I wish a motherfucker would, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, I think there's something that we have to talk about, though, which is the Comanches. Mm -hmm. Once again, Native Americans are kind of one dimensional. They're violent and savage. Mm -hmm. Now, the Comanche tribe kind of has always been portrayed that way, along with the Apache. And we have talked about actors in blackface. And this is probably I think a number of the them in this were white people in red face. Yeah. I cut him a little slack on this because finding Native Americans in France is probably a little hard. Yeah. Um, The actors that play the Comanche warriors Mm -hmm. are uncredited, so I don't know who they are. They're mostly extras. It looks like they chose Spaniards, either Spanish or Spanish-French actors, which makes a little bit of sense, I guess, because there was a lot of... Hispanic ethnic heritage in the Native American tribes of the Southwest. So, yes, I give them a little point for trying there, you know? Yeah. I think that today audiences wouldn't accept it. They would have to cast Native American actors. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they absolutely would. If it was now, they would be reaching out to a tribe. They would be culturally appropriate. They would do all of their research and probably include some historical references for that tribe. And and then on top of that, they'd probably have a whole other storyline for that tribe. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, you'd have to in order to not just portray them as like this violent, you know, there, there'd have to be a reason for mm-hmm. them doing this. But it was very cool to see like a Comanche brave, you know, with a spear in combat with a samurai. Yeah. You know, that that's just, yeah, that's a matchup you don't see too often. Yeah, that was the, one of my favorite fight scenes for sure. One bit of, of trivia I had on this movie, John Landis, the director, Mm-hmm. he got his start in Europe. Some films that were sh- shot in places like Czechoslovakia and, and stuff like that. But uh, he was bouncing around Europe in the early 70s and he ended up in this film Okay, cast as a henchman. He's one of the henchmen in this film. Uncredited, but worth noting, he's there. I think that's the only bit of trivia I have about this particular film. It, you know, this was the almost almost kind of a buddy film because they eventually link and Dubai eventually began to like each other and you could see them start to develop kind of a, a rapport with each other and i think one of the first scenes where they showed that is where um where Dubai cooked up some some food he cooked up some food and link ate it and to see him just like act like a typical American crybaby with, you know, new food that he doesn't recognize. He was just like, mm, ugh. you know, just like the, the smell, the, 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 and then he tastes it. He's like, oh, oh, okay. Okay. That's pretty good. I like that. This, this isn't bad. And then you could see him cooking throughout the film. So it kind of threw me off when, um, they had taken Christina with them to, you know, to get gauche and she was with them and and Link tells her to cook, <laughs> knowing that she's probably not going to cook very well. And I'm like, didn't you buy do a better job and didn't seem to mind? So I just thought that was kind of funny because I was like, oh, OK, so now that the woman's here, he's going to try to get her to cook when he already has a good cook, like right in front of him. All right, then. <laughs> and you mentioned uh, a kind of a buddy film. This film was supposedly the inspiration for Shanghai Noon. Okay. 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 I could see that too. There Uh have been a lot of East East meets West, Mm -hmm. you know, Westerns with with, uh, samurai or something like that in them since. But this is really one of the first to do it. Probably most notably uh, after this came David Carradine and the TV series Kung Fu, which came on Mm -hmm. TV in 1972. Walk the rice paper. (laughs) Yes. So and another one of another character actor we know from Tarantino's work. He tended to cast David Carradine. Oh, I know he loved him. I don't know for sure, but I don't think there would have been a Kung Fu TV series if it hadn't been for Red Sun the previous year. You know, I've seen Samurai or Ninjas in the West since then. Dagger of Kamui is a Japanese anime that has a similar idea. But really, this is the first time I recall seeing it, you know, on the big screen. 1971 was probably the first time. Could be wrong. If I am wrong, be sure to let me know in you can email us at GC8 podcast. That's the letter G, the letter C, the number eight podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Also be sure to like and subscribe to the show. I look forward to the next adventure we, we go on with the with the next movie. 
Okay. Where can people reach you, find you if they want to? Um, well, I, uh, I play roller derby for the Black and Bluegrass Roller Girls, and I also have my own skater page. Black and Bluegrass Roller Girls can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You know, look us up, Black N, as in letter N, Bluegrass Roller Girls. Also, uh, NKY for Northern Kentucky, NKYRollerDerby.com. And then you can also find me on Facebook as Briggs and Smackum. That's uh, Briggs, letter N, Smackum, S-M-A-C-K, apostrophe E-M. I uh, still run my skater page and post things on there on a regular basis, things that are interesting to me. Feel free to follow and uh, learn more about my team and more about roller derby. I'd love to hear from you. Great. And GC8 itself, you can also find us on Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook page for the podcast. You can find us on um, Letterboxd for the hardcore film fans. And uh, we also have a blog on Blogger, the GC8 podcast blog. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. Signing off. Signing off.